This is Healthcare Strategies. With over 88 million Americans living with prediabetes, adopting scalable and accessible preventative care methods is imperative to the success of your care management programs. Lark's Virtual Diabetes Prevention Program, fully recognized by the CDC, is one of the fastest growing diabetes prevention programs today. Lark's scalable AI-based DPP provides every member with an easy-to-use, engaging, text message-like interface that empowers them to take control of their health. On average, users see a 5% weight loss at 12 months. Think Lark can help with your member population? Visit lark.com HPI for a free demo today. Hello, and welcome to Healthcare Strategies. I'm Anuja Vaidya, Senior Editor and Special Events Lead at mHealth Intelligence. Predictive analytics holds a great deal of promise for the healthcare industry from helping organizations predict patient utilization patterns to managing the supply chain, the uses of predictive analytics are varied. In fact, the University of Missouri Healthcare won the prestigious Hems Davies Award last year for using a predictive analytics tool to enable earlier intervention in cases of septic shock. Today, Dr. Tom Salva, CMIO of the health system, is joining us to discuss the role of predictive analytics in healthcare, how it can be used to prevent adverse events, as well as the potential limitations of the technology. Dr. Salva, thank you for coming on Healthcare Strategies today. I'm very happy to join you, thank you. Fantastic. So first, I'd like to just set the stage a little bit. Could you describe some of the key uses of predictive analytics in healthcare? Sure, as you mentioned earlier, predictive analytics, it's a loaded term, right? Because people hear predictive analytics, they hear artificial intelligence, machine learning, et cetera. And it's actually, it can be all the way down to effective reporting that allows actions to occur as you'd expect them to. So it's a pretty large term. We see in healthcare right now, predictive analytics being used primarily in operations. So looking at supply chain, certainly the COVID response, hospitals that were in health systems that were the most successful at responding to the pandemic are those that used data to really drive action, to predict when a surge would happen, to predict when they need more staffing, uh, to predict supply chain shortages so that they could continue to deliver on their mission of good health care. We see predictive analytics being used in scheduling applications, whether it's scheduling OR cases where time is critical and you have to manage those very expensive resources, and maybe a little bit more being uh, applied now to actually scheduling patients in a clinic setting where you can use the physicians and the staff's time more efficiently. Creeping into clinical care, actually delivering bedside care is, I think, the next big vista for predictive analytics. And there are a lot of challenges that go with that because, one, you can't get it wrong, right? You don't get the opportunity to get it right most of the time. You have to get it right all of the time. And you're dealing with something that's not complicated. It's a complex adaptive environment where things will change in response to your intervention. So it's a little bit different. And then there's a matter of trust, right, from the care team. Absolutely. Definitely. This seems like it's the new frontier for predictive analytics, you know, using these technologies to ensure that early intervention on some really life-threatening infections. So can you talk a little bit more about sort of the importance of early interventions and what that can do for clinical care? Absolutely. You know, you want to be more proactive in clinical care than reactive. Certainly we have to do that at times when patients decline quickly. You have to know what to do. Code blue is the perfect example of the response to a critical event. You prefer not to get there, right? Because again, many times the outcome, even if you're successful in bringing the patient back, is not good. 
We know that one out of four patients who die in hospitals in America is usually from sepsis. Okay, this causes decline. Remember that these patients don't come in healthy. Mm -hmm. Many times they've already got multiple comorbidities and they're already in a fragile state. So an infection can sort of tip them over the edge. Mm -hmm. So there have been algorithms and predictive models out there for many years. The St. John sepsis algorithm is one we've had it operating in the cloud for some time. And that's great. It will tell you that your patient is septic but you'd prefer to know long before that happens. And so the earlier you can intervene and turn that ship around before it collides with the shore, the more likely you're gonna have a better outcome. So when you have a predictive model that it can at least assist you in making that determination, the patient's gonna do better. Now, one could ask, well, aren't you knowing that because you're seeing the patient at the bedside? And the answer is, well, yes. But again, you have to understand that healthcare environment is incredibly busy, sometimes chaotic, and you can't have an individual at the bedside 24 seven. So you have to rely on these other sort of data models to help you sort of get that attention density around the patient that might be heading for clinical decline. Absolutely. And yeah, I definitely want to get into the technology algorithm that you use. But before we get to those details, I did want to ask, you know, why sepsis? I know you mentioned already that a large number of patients suffer from sepsis and it's a very common infection, but was there any other reason that you targeted sepsis specifically? Yeah, because it shouldn't happen, right? Patients should not arrive in the hospital sick with one issue and then they die because they get an infection and we weren't paying attention. As well, sepsis is something that can be very, very hard to see early on, right? This is something that could creep up on you. You're thinking about all the other issues that the patient has, their heart failure, their lung disease, their diabetes, their hypertension. And oh, by the way, they're also septic. Um, And so sometimes you're not focusing on that. And these are uh, events that should not happen. We call them never events, right? A patient Mm -hmm. should not die of sepsis. And so if we can prevent that, then all the better. Absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So now kind of onto the technology. Could you describe the NEWS early intervention tool? Yeah, the NEWS score is the National Early Warning Score. Okay. And it's really not an algorithm. It's really just a scoring schema that that takes into account, you know, things like respiratory rate, oxygen saturation, whether the patient's on oxygen or not, temperature, blood, systolic blood pressure, their pulse rate. These are common data elements, right, that are being captured all the time. In our institution, we're very fortunate in that we have thousands of devices that are actually interfaced in real time into our EHR platform. So the days of the nurse doing the vitals on all his or her patients, and then four hours later, entering those into the chart to be later reviewed by the physician that is now occurring in real time. And so that's a good thing. At the same time, when you're capturing all that information, it would be nice to have some scoring system that would sort of give you a measure of perhaps you need to pay a little closer attention to this patient. And that's what the National Early Warning Score does. There's actually one called PEWS, which we're now instituting, which is the pediatric version of this. So um, having that score is one thing, but what do you do with it? And, and you'll find in our HIMSS presentation, the point we try to drive home is it's not about technology. It was about the people, the process, mm-hmm. the culture that was built around what do we do with the score? Do we believe in it? How do we respond to it? Mm-hmm. And then once you've really solidified that, then put the technology in place to automate it so that you do it in a standard fashion. So what we did with news is we took the news score and, and our clinical informaticist, Ben Wax, who's a nurse informaticist that works for us, really gets all the credit here. He worked diligently with nurses on one floor to prove that this would work. How do you put it in their workflow? So where is it displayed on the screen in such a way that when the score is calculated, they can see it? What color do you want it to be? What threshold do you want to agree upon that now mandates intervention? 
Okay, once we've done that, then what will that intervention be? Mm -hmm. So the easy intervention is we'll call the doctor. Well, that would be great, but physicians, particularly in large academic medical centers, and particularly after hours, are doing many, many things at the same time. And sometimes they're dealing with another patient. They can't get to that patient. So the next step is we have a rapid response team that is there to come in and intervene before the patient has cardiac arrest or decompensates. So agree that at this threshold, you'll call the rapid response team. And what are they empowered to do? What is the nurse empowered to do without the physician there? Get all that in place and now build a technology around it so that the alerts fire stop you in your workflow to let you know, hey, this is a high news score. You now need to intervene, setting up automatic triggers that the tiger team, we call the tiger teams here, but the rapid response team gets paged automatically. You don't have to remember to do it. It just happens. So that's what we did with, with the new score. So it's less about predictive analytics where there's some predictive model out there that's sort of running in the cloud and sending all these alerts everywhere. It's really more about how did you build confidence around this score? What happens with it? And then automate that our EHR platform. Once we did that, and then it's classic quality improvement, right? Mm -hmm. Prove it on another unit. Once you prove that it can be done in two different units that do different sort of patient care, then how do you spread that across the organization? And that's really, I think, the secret sauce and what we accomplished is really about building that culture and getting the people and processes in place and then instituting the technology. I know that sounds, it's very basic. It's sort of getting back to the basic principles, but really that's how it all works. Absolutely. Tried and true. There's not really nothing better than that. But I'm curious, you know, while you were implementing this system, um, you know, with the new score and the rapid response team and kind of getting it off its feet, what were some of the challenges you faced and how did you work about overcoming those? So, you know, when you bring in a scoring system like the new score, you have to get staff to, to have confidence in it. Right. And so one education behind it, proving there's evidence behind it. We're all clinical care providers. We want to see the evidence before we're going to change our workflows. Right. Then getting the staff to understand, is this going to change your workflow? And the reality is the beauty of this is you're not changing anything that you're already doing. These are key pieces of information that you capture every day in your workflow. And yet they're very simple, but when placed in a good scoring system, they actually give you some critical information about your patient that you might want to pay attention to. And, you know, in, any good trained clinician would say, well, yes, I can put that all together in my head. That's true. But sometimes having technology put it together for in, in a way that sort of draws your attention to it when you're busy is even better, right? Mm -hmm. So one challenge was getting uh, agreement that we all will trust the score. The next challenge is what threshold warrants a response, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want to set the threshold so high that it's too late. You also don't want it so low that you're overactivating all these resources uh, and intervening too early, right? So getting agreement there, sort of fine-tuning it. That's what we did on the first unit, the second unit. Um, and then after that, Really, it's, it's more of the how do you build the whole platform of education around educating every nurse that comes through our institution, the nurses that are already here educating the physicians, et cetera. We're fortunate here that we have really good teams built around that so they, they could tackle that pretty easily. And then eventually, what you want to achieve is what we've achieved. This is just the way we do it. Capturing good outcomes data, like uh, how many code blues did you have on this service? How many tiger team activations did you have or rapid response team activations? And when you see those two lines sort of diverging, you know you've done your job right. So you increase the rapid response team activations and in response, your code blue activations go down. And then of course, if your mortality rate goes down, then you know you've achieved your ultimate outcome, right? You're saving lives. 
Absolutely. I want to hone in just a little bit on the first point that you mentioned about getting that buy-in, reporting on health IT. I've learned that nothing is more important than that initial buy-in when it comes to new processes and new technology. So could you give us a little bit of insight into those conversations and, you know, how did you coalesce that support around this new process? Yeah, that's where when you have someone like, and again, he gets all the credit. When you have someone like Ben Wax, who this is his passion, right? He has a lot of personal reasons for wanting this to be alive and living in our our healthcare environment. Again, the news scoring system was not something that was new. There's good evidence behind it. It's really about how do you implement it in your institution? So it wasn't so hard to get buy-in from the nursing staff. It really was more of how are you going to change your workflow? And, And we have to understand that we hear a lot about burnout in our clinical care environments and burnout around physicians. What we don't talk about is burnout in our nursing staff. And the burnout rates are phenomenally higher in nursing staff than they are in physicians. It's part of what's driving the national nursing shortage now. The pandemic just finally pushed a lot of nurses out of the healthcare field. So when you ask someone like a nurse, let me put more data in front of you, they're probably going to go, thank you. 90% of what I document, no one sees anyway. So great. So helping them understand that, no, this is what you're already capturing. What we want to do is help put it in place, put it in front of you so you can see it. And then depending upon which platform you're on, if you've ever seen a nursing flow sheet, that is very valuable real estate because there's a tremendous amount of data crammed into a small screen. So you have to get agreement on where that's going to live. Mm -hmm. And then every nursing unit sort of has their own way of displaying their data. So getting them all to agree, it's going to live in the same place. So at a glance, you know, you sort of have that muscle memory of, I see it, I know I need to respond to it. Mm -hmm. So that was probably the hardest work was getting that sort of conversation underway. Again, we have a structure and a culture here. It's sort of the DNA of the University of Missouri. I've been here 33 years, and it's been that way since I've come here, of constantly wanting to improve. Even before that was sort of the watchword in healthcare and building the structure around that. So we already had a very strong structure of quality improvement around key issues. And one of our key issues was we needed to reduce our mortality rate. We needed to provide better care to our patients and identify sepsis earlier this was the way to do it. So when you get leadership behind that across the board, and it is now an institutional initiative, it is a lot easier to have those conversations. It's not someone's great idea. It is the institution's imperative to get this done. Absolutely. Well, I'm sure that makes all the difference once it's a strategic goal. Great. So now I want to zoom out just a little bit once again and talk a bit about maybe some of the potential flip sides to AI use, to predictive analytics. We keep seeing so many concerns um, around use of these types of technology, whether it's sort of biases and algorithms, whether it's incomplete data. What, in your opinion, are some limitations of predictive analytics technology that providers really need to be aware of? Yeah, I think that one, when you think about where we can apply predictive analytics, so when you think about machine learning, artificial intelligence, you need to understand that in in the medical world, we care more about why you did what you did than what you did, right? So it's the whole, do I give you a fish or do I teach you to fish? As an academic physician who's teaching residents and students, I always tell them I'm less concerned about the conclusion you came to than I am about how you got there because you could have reached the right conclusion because you just got lucky. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, your thinking could have been completely wrong. By the same token, you could have reached the wrong conclusion and your thinking was perfect. You forgot a couple of things that you need to consider, right? Mm -hmm. And that's how we constantly think. 
So when you have these predictive models that come along and they'll get there and they'll say, well, I've come to the conclusion the patient has this diagnosis. And then you ask the question, well, how did you come to that conclusion? And the answer is, well, I don't know. It's a neural network. It's a black box. I'm not really sure how it came up to that great. I mean, that's it. Like done. The trust is out the door, right? You have to be able to do it. And there are organizations now who are providing machine learning platforms that will say, hey, can I suggest this diagnosis to you? And here's the evidence I found in the patient's record to come to that conclusion. You're going to get better trust and buy-in from there, right? Now, so far in healthcare, we've seen, you know, sort of machine learning, you know, Watson and all these other ones we've heard about that can come to conclusions about cancer therapy and help you make a diagnosis. I think sort of the next big vista that we're going to see, and I hope to see, is that we have so much information now about ourselves, whether it's my profession, what I do, my specialty, or you as a patient, we need to be willing to bring that data together. So I call that knowing you and knowing me, right? I could ask you about yourself and you could tell me your hopes, your dreams, your concerns, right? But I also know where you live. And by knowing where you live and knowing a little bit about inside your chart, right? I should already know where all your pharmacies are. I should know that you live in a food desert. I should know that you live in an area where certain diseases are more prevalent. I should know where you can get care most easily and least expensively for you. By the same token, we have clinicians sort of who've been dying on the altar of technology for the last 10 years. And that technology has come a long way. That technology should now also know me. When I log in, hello, Dr. Selva, you're a pediatrician, you're seeing children today, and I know exactly how you typically interact with this platform. Let me present that to you. Rather than the model of you're the pilot who should have learned how to fly this particular plane, and you just have to know where everything is and where to find everything. And that's not where we need to be. I think if we can bring those two together, and this is where I think machine learning, artificial intelligence can really help us. I think that's when you're going to start to have that trust. Everyone wants to have the Amazon experience in healthcare. And I'm going to sound like an old guy, and I don't mean to, but we also have to acknowledge that healthcare is inherently complex, and you can only simplify it so far, and then it can become dangerous. So again, we can't get it right most of the time. We're not allowed that luxury in healthcare. We have to get it right every time. But I think we're closer. And I think that's where a lot of these predictive analytics can get us to. If you look at the larger ecosystem of just healthcare writ large as sort of a, an enterprise, absolutely, right? We can provide better reporting and predicting so that we have better staffing, staff for surges, we're using our supplies more efficiently. I think if you apply predictive analytics to how we actually pay for healthcare, we'd probably be spending a whole lot less on healthcare in America. So I think we are on the cusp of some incredible change and it's going to be our job to sort of guide it in the right direction. Yeah, lots of evolution expected, I think, in this field, but yeah, the more it can do to really help us get it right every time, like you said, uh, which is so key. So if you could leave us with just one or two predictions of how you think these types of technologies will be used maybe in the next five years. I think that would be a really great note to end on. Yeah, again, predictive analytics in medicine, we call it a wastebasket term, right? So it conjures up so many different technologies. Healthcare is a low margin business in America. So predictive analytics will be applied more and more to make it more efficient so that we're spending the dollars where they need to be spent and more effectively, which is good for everyone. The cusp of machine learning and artificial intelligence at whatever level will improve the patient experience from literally making the appointment to ending the visit, paying the bill, or being admitted to the hospital. 
I think it's going to change the way we deliver healthcare so that patients spend less time in the hospital. That also means that the patients we care for in the hospital are going to be more complicated. And the more we can apply technology to help the fallible human mind pay attention to what is important in the moment is where I think our next big vista is. And as I mentioned earlier, I sort of sum it up as know you, the patient, know me, the clinician. Those two things combined can only have a good outcome. Absolutely. Well, here's hoping we get to that vista as soon as possible. Thank you so much, Dr. Salva, for joining us on the podcast and for this great conversation. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you very much. And for our listeners, feel free to reach out to us at avedia at extelligentmedia.com. That's A-V-A-I-D-Y-A at extelligentmedia.com to share your thoughts on this topic. You can also use that email address to tell us any healthcare-related questions or stories you would like us to consider covering. Also, if you enjoyed today's conversation, please do let us know. You can rate us on Apple Podcasts and write us a review. Thank you so much for listening. This has been an Extelligent Healthcare Media production. 